what I'm seeing in general in the arts ecosystem, which I think augurs well, is most performance spaces now seem to work on a revenue share model, which is say, I as an artist want to present uh, my new production. I don't have to pay necessarily for a venue hire in some, in some cases, rather whatever is the ticket price, it's shared, the revenue is shared between the artist and the facility. That could be, you know, 70, 30 or 40, 60 or, you know, whatever works uh, between. So I think that's another way where, you know, artists may not be able to invest a lot upfront, but, you know, if the event does well, then it benefits both the facility as well as the artist. So I think these are all new models of, you know, figuring out what works best for the artist and the facility. Welcome to Indian Artpreneur by Kala Tapasya. I am your host Shwet Nag. On today's episode, we have Manasi Prasad, who is a noted classical vocalist from Bangalore and also the museum director of the Indian Music Experience, which is India's first high-tech interactive music museum. Manasi is also a acclaimed musician who has performed at leading sabhas such as the Madras Music Academy, Bangalore Gayana Samaja, Sikha in Hyderabad and the Cleveland Tyagaraja Festival. She is also an empanel artist of the ICCR and has also performed concerts across six continents. Manasi has been part of IME since its inception. So who else could be better to talk to, to learn about the initiatives undertaken by this museum and what goes behind the scenes in running such institutions? So let's talk to Manasi Prasad. Hi Manasi, welcome to Indian Artpreneur. It's a pleasure talking to you today. Likewise, thank you so much for having me on the show and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much uh, Manasi. Uh, Manasi, my first question to you, could you tell us how you developed your interest in Carnatic music? Well, I was amongst those lucky ones, I would say, Shwetna, who grew up in an environment filled with music and the arts. My mother, Srimati Tara Prasad, who it's also my first music teacher, was a music teacher, a guru of Carnatic music. And she uh, has taught a lot of students, especially when we lived outside India. We lived in Kuwait and that's where I spent the first nine years of my life. And uh, she used to teach a lot of students who would come home to learn. So some of my first memories really of, of anything are of me in my mother's lap and I remember or or I have vague recollections of people coming home and singing. So in my mind, I thought it was very natural to sing. I, I thought everybody sang and that it wasn't something that you can choose to do. So it came very naturally to me. And as, as time passed, I think I realized that not only is it the environment, but I seem to enjoy doing it. And, and I had a talent and an aptitude for music and the arts. Uh, so it was really, I think, a combination of many things, nature and nurture, as they say, which I think is very important for uh, music or any art to flourish for that matter. Very interesting. Looking at your achievements, uh, you seem to strike a fine balance between your academic achievements uh, and also your hobbies since your childhood. Who has helped you to gain this balance? So I'd like to make a slight correction here that music is is not a hobby. Music is is my life, and it's 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 a career, it's a profession, but it's much more than that. I would say it's a calling. And so while I was growing up, I think it it was very natural for me to switch contexts between music and dance, which I was pursuing very seriously as well, and academics. So I would quickly switch between various contexts and in fact I think that kept my childhood years of course quite packed but also very interesting because I never got bored of studying I never got bored of music there was always something different that I got to do and as I went on I started seeing sort of the ways that all these different facets would help each other dance which is not music or academics taught me the power of communication and non-verbal communication, which is something that I've believed in uh, from, from early on. And music gave me the lessons of discipline and, you know, just doing something repeatedly. A lot of music is 
part of it is creative but part of it is just being very repetitive and practicing the same thing over and over and over again until you get it right and i think this is a skill that perhaps young people today need to get because everybody is so scatterbrained and attention span is so short but when you are in music and you are singing the same phrase 50 times 75 times until you get it just right so i think for me i found that all these various facets were not balancing each other but rather contributing to each other and that's something that continued through my childhood through college in fact when i was studying engineering and later on doing my mba i was i already had a very active performing career i would be performing concerts uh, not just all over india but i started traveling outside very young so music has taken me to places like south america and africa and and of course europe and you know australia and i i have a dream of singing in antarctica someday i don't know if that will happen but uh, i think coming back to your question of of where does one find balance i think when we begin to see connections between all these various aspects that it actually makes them all interconnected and not necessarily uh, you know different from each other and i'm very grateful for that quite uh, quite interesting there uh, now coming to the uh, uh, indian music experience what is ime for our audience and how the museum is organized uh, could you walk us through your the museum for those who have not visited absolutely so before i tell you what is ime i have to tell you why ime why does one need an institution called the indian music experience whatever it may be and for me personally this journey of setting up the indian music experience again goes back to when i was oh perhaps only a musician uh, at that point in time i hadn't started my work on setting up the museum and i would always ask this question of how do we make our indian performing traditions and classical arts relevant to contemporary audiences and this is a question i think all artists especially classical artists have to ask themselves that you cannot expect audiences to somehow you know learn everything and come and appreciate your concert it is part of your duty to make that connection to make it relevant in some way to newer audiences because that is how the reach of this wonderful art form will grow and i'm sure we all agree that art should not be the prerogative of a select few our wonderful traditions the compositions of tyagaraja muttuswami dikshit shama shastri the great haridasa compositions our vachana sahitya bhajans abhangs you know our classical traditions are so rich and how do you make this relevant so this was a question that i would ask myself and as an individual artist i would answer that in different ways uh, for example by communicating the meaning of what i sing or for example when i did a presentation on mirabai i ask people to not look at her as a as a saint or a devotee but the, you know she was a human being who chose her passion over what society expected her to do so for me that was a relevance that will you know even a software engineer can appreciate that right that you know i am always caught between this material you know this money chasing versus maybe you know my passion is to be an entrepreneur and do something else or be a writer so for me in my personal journey i started answering that question of relevance in my own way and then as time went on and you know i completed my education i was i was working in a corporate job while doing music on the side i actually got this opportunity where uh, the founder of one of india's largest real estate uh, developers brigade group uh, our, our founder mr jay shankar he knew me because uh, as a musician and and then he said i've heard you talk about this relevance and making this connection with young people and i had said in some somewhere that like there is an iim indian institute of management there needs to be an indian institute of music why is there not and he said look um, you know i want to support and fund this and i i share a similar passion that our traditions need to reach out to younger people so uh, and about 12 years ago now we started this journey of envisioning an institution that would become the hub of indian music and over the course of 10 long years we set up what is today the indian music experience museum now the vision of the ime is 
to increase the understanding and awareness about Indian music from the traditional to the contemporary. And it is India's first and only interactive music museum. The museum today has three parts. Outside the museum, there is this wonderful sound garden where we introduce people to the principles of physics through music. Because at the end of the day, uh, sound is based on vibration, there is frequency, resonance, amplitude, you know, all this physics we have studied in our textbooks, but you come to the sound garden, it comes to life. You can actually understand what is resonant frequency. You can see what is timbre or timbre as it is called. You can understand how frequency and wavelength are inversely proportional. So these concepts come to life in the sound garden. Then inside the museum, we have thematic exhibit galleries. And these exhibit galleries are very different from what you would think of a typical museum as being, you know, it's got all these old objects and it's about dead people. Our museum is not like that. It's alive, it's about living traditions, and it's very interactive. So we have, we've, of course, we have artifacts, we have musical instruments, we have, uh, you know, belongings of famous musicians. Uh, we have recording memorabilia like, you know, LPs, gramophones, phonograph, radios, all that is there. But what makes it really interesting is two things. One is the stories, which is, you know, do you know, you, you've all heard Janakadamana. How did it become the national anthem of India? Why was Vande Matram not chosen? There's a history behind it. Or do you know that the first records in India were all made by women? You would think that technology is first adapted by men, but in the case of recording in India, all the first stars of recording were women. Why? So it's it's those stories. The second part that makes it really interesting is these computer interactives that we've built into the museum. You know, Bangalore is a hub of uh, software in addition to being a wonderful cosmopolitan cultural city. So um, to reflect that and to teach music and to reach it out, uh, we've created a lot of computer interactives that are part of the museum. So if you wanted an experience of, you know, how does a, a music producer layer tracks with different sounds to make it sound rich? We, we've created a really simple layering um, touchscreen based in installation where, you know, you can drag and drop different sounds and you'll have your own music mix. We have a recording studio where you can sing a song and then you can choose to hear how it would sound, say, in the 1940s. So it'll sound a little scratchy and then your electronic sounds will be replaced by a tabla and a dholak. So it gives you a sense of how music and technology have progressed over time. So this is the second part of the museum. And the third part is the learning center. Now, our idea is once, you know, young people come to the museum and get hooked to music, how do they take it further? So our learning center offers structured curriculum-based music education. This is serious learning music over a course of several years uh, where you kind of get deeply entrenched into an art form. Now, we've expanded that online once the pandemic has happened and, you know, we take students from all over the world and... I think uh, it is one of the very well-structured music curriculum programs out there. So these are the three parts of the museum, really. And we, of course, do a host of public programs, events, both online and offline. We do a lot of community development initiatives. So all I would say for everybody who's listening to this uh, podcast is to check out Indian Music Experience online. We even have a 3D virtual walkthrough. So sitting in Europe or Africa or wherever you are, you can get a glimpse of the museum. And I hope you all do. Coming out of college, uh, you did your MBA at IIM Bangalore. You you worked in investment banking, and then you slowly, you know, you move into this field. There is a lot of execution process steps. Like you have to find a space, you have to then build it, find a software developer who can program, as you said, what what has been. Could you tell us your journey in learning and executing as you go? Because it's not no one is there who has done this before to teach you. This is how it should be done. So could you tell us how, who was your guide? Who did you approach to when you are in doubt? Sure. So I think it has been an interesting journey. And for me, you know, I think, and this is a question that a lot of entrepreneurs have. And again, I'm not a true entrepreneur because really I didn't, uh, the opportunity came to me to, to set up this institution. But having said that, I, I've had to you know, build this from scratch. So I'm kind of part entrepreneur, but I had the security of some funding. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about where my next meal was coming, which is, you know, something a lot of entrepreneurs do have to worry about. Uh, for me, when did I take the plunge? That's the first question. So I remember I was, uh, it was my 25th birthday. And I was 
in in Wall Street. It was midnight and I was still at work because I had a big presentation to do the next day and I turned 25. There was nobody around. I'm this big skyscraper. It was beautiful. But then the question that I asked myself is, is this my true calling? I might be making a lot of money, but am I really happy with what I'm doing? And clearly for me, the answer was, no, I want to be in music, both as a musician, as a performer, as well as contributing back to the field, because I believed that I think I had something unique in terms of music and management. So that's when I said, you know what, let me come back and let me do something in music. And then, as I said, when we embarked on this journey. We knew we wanted to set up some kind of music institution, but we didn't know what it would be. You know, we could have set up a music school or we could have set up some sort of um, multi-performance uh, space. There, was, there are so many ways that you can create a music institution. Absolutely. Right. So I think one of the first things that, that I knew and, you know, me and my founder knew was that we wanted it to be unique. What is this one idea that we have, which is perhaps different from everything else that's out there? So I think that's like a great place to start because I knew there were plenty of music schools in, in India. You have no dearth of gurus who are teaching, but I felt the big gap. So for me, identifying that gap was how do you get more people into the fold of music? You know, there are all these youngsters out there. They think music is Bollywood. Bollywood has music. I'm, I'm not doubting that. But there's a world out there. Do you know that, you know, I don't know, Nimbuda Nimbuda, it's probably an old example, but the, the Nimbuda Nimbuda track, which is from Hamdil J.H.K. Sanam, is actually a very traditional Manganyar folk composition, which has been adapted to film. And there are countless examples like this. So the gap that we wanted to fill was to get more young people into the fold. <clears throat> they will be tomorrow's performers, but they will also be the audience of tomorrow. And they will be the patrons of tomorrow, the ones who support the arts, right? So we needed to get more people into the fold. So once and then, you know, our, our founder and I, we traveled and uh, our founder actually visited the Experience Music Project in Seattle. It's, it's a museum, but it's so much more than that. It's like a hub where just kids come and hang out and it celebrates creativity. And while we were debating the idea, he came and he said, look, this is an interesting model. Why can't we create a sort of museum, but change the definition of what a museum is? So I think really there were a few challenges. One is really crystallizing the concept and making sure it's unique. It fills a gap that is there in the arts and it's exciting. The second, once we had a sense of what we wanted to build was the execution. As you said, there was no precedent for something like this in India. So where do you look for examples, where do you learn from? So, I mean, I always, when we opened the museum, I said, of course, I thank the internet because it was just a lot of research. And of course, visiting other museums, learning best practices, um, consulting with hundreds and hundreds of people who have been part of this effort to build the museum. And I think one of the, I learned many lessons. Uh, one of the important lessons I learned was uh, as you said, there were so many different people, right? There's civil engineering, there's exhibit design, there's graphic design, there's software, there's hardware. And then there are content experts like all these musicologists. So I worked with like, you know, 70 or 80 different kinds of people. And how do you get them all to agree on this common vision, right? So one of the things that we used to do very often during the project was to get all these people to talk to each other. Typically what happens, like when you're building a house or when you're doing something, you consult with the architect and then you consult with the interior designer. Then you consult with like your whoever's providing your security system. But I think one of the successes of our project was we got these different groups of people to interact with each other. So there was the musicologist saying, you know what, Samai Chakra is really important. And then the interior designer was saying, you know what, you know, these colors need to be there. So out of that chaos emerged uh, a shared vision of what the space would be like. And I think that was one of the challenges. And I think one of the successes, clearly fundraising is always, you know, a challenge and one has to bring passion to the table, build it and they will come, they will support it. So it's been a long journey and, and one that is not over. The museum is still a baby. It's two years old. So we have to build this institution to last a lifetime. So, I mean, the only thing I would say is, is if, if one has an idea, there's no right way to do it. Just plunge in and, and see what comes of it. 
does IME help individual artists in any way, like paid concerts or uh, you provide teaching avenues? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the things that institutions like ours do or should do and are trying to do is uh, to provide career options. Like, for example, you very rightly said, a, every artist is an entrepreneur. I completely agree with that because you go through the entire cycle of, you know, product, marketing, outreach, monetization, you know, audience understanding, you know, so there are all these aspects um, that go and you, you hit it on the head when you said every artist is an entrepreneur. The, again, one of the big challenges with making a life in the arts is the lack thereof of career opportunities. So how can institutions like ours you know, and what do we do? So one is, of course, we do a lot of events and public programs. Clearly, the pandemic has not helped us because um, the avenues to conduct events and public programs have been limited. We've been doing some online. Um, but, you know, the, the avenues for monetization when there's a physical concert are much more, right? Because people pay for the experience of a concert, not to hear something online because they might as well go to YouTube. So... Uh, the avenues for monetization are much more in a physical concert. You can get sponsors, you can get you can ticket concerts, and and that allows us to compensate artists much better. So having said that, of course, um, we do a host of events and public programs, and that provides a platform for artists, both young and established, uh, to reach out. The other thing we do is also we curate. Um, concerts for other institutions. For example, right now we are running a, a collaboration with Ranga Shankara, which is another very well-known theater institution in Bangalore. And they've just started a few months ago reviving this live performance scene. And we identify talented artists from the ecosystem, music ecosystem, and uh, they're given a platform uh, to reach out to audiences at Ranga Shankara. So there's a kind of, you know, we're doing our bit to help uh, artists find platforms and recognition, which is important. Uh, secondly, yes, our learning center uh, provides, uh, as I said, has wonderful faculty on board. And uh, these are all people who are brilliant musicians, but also excellent educators. And through the learning center, as it grows, you know, we do hope that, you know, larger number of, uh, you know, teachers will be employed. So that's another way. And apart from that, you know, our own staff, the team that runs IME, we're small, we're just about 10 people, but nearly half of us are artists of some sort. And oh, yeah, and we found a way to, um, you know, for example, I have one of the artists, one of the my team members, she is a software engineer and a musician. And her, it's about identifying the right person for the right job. So she spearheaded the setting up of a learning management system for the learning center at the museum. And only a person who knows music and tech can do that. So in some ways, I guess IME is also a space where people involved with the arts can find a job that gets their passion and profession to to meet a lot more needs to be done i agree in this regard about providing steady employment for for musicians and uh, all of us need to do our bit they have a my next question was also based on that that uh, if a theater artist wants to hire uh, uh, a theater uh, space in Rangashankara. She was saying that uh, 2,000 rupees is what all you need to uh, two, two and a half thousand rupees. And they charge some very basic 10, 15% on the ticket based on the volumes you sell. Uh, do you have similar concepts uh, at uh, IME? Because in Bangalore, renting a space is so difficult to establish concert. Is it something that problem, I mean, is this problem, what you're thinking is big enough for you to work on? Uh, no, certainly, I think providing affordable spaces, not just for performance, but also for rehearsal is very important. And of course, at IME, we do both. We have both performance spaces. Uh, we have a very nice performance theater. We have an amphitheater up on the roof. We have an open air sound garden space, which is converted for large concerts. Um, and we have rehearsal rooms. We have a seminar hall. We have our learning center classrooms. All are available at, you know, fairly nominal rates for hire. Clearly, we are not yet at the level where we can match Ranga Shankara. They are extremely affordable. We may not be that affordable, but yes, the idea is over time uh, to make it very affordable uh, for artists. Uh, what I'm seeing in general in the arts ecosystem, which I think augurs well, is most performance spaces now seem to work on a revenue share model, which is say, I as an artist want to present uh, my new production I don't have to pay necessarily for a venue hire in some in some cases. Rather, 
whatever is the ticket price, it's shared. The revenue is shared between the artist and the facility. That could be, you know, 70, 30 or 40, 60 or, you know, whatever works uh, between. So I think that's another way where, you know, artists may not be able to invest a lot upfront, but, you know, if the event does well, then it benefits both the facility as well as the artist. So I think these are all new models of, you know, figuring out what works best for the artist and the facility. When I was looking at your website, you also do a lot of concerts uh, from time to time. How do you go about it? Like you bring uh, new talent plus an established and put them together on a stage or what kind of curation process do you follow? Sure. I mean, curation, event curation and public program curation is is quite an important part of what we do. And we're still figuring it out. I'll be honest, you know, we have to learn as we go along. Uh, for us, we try and look at it as a matrix. We have, In fact, we start off looking at a lot of things, which I think separates us from maybe some institutions, is we start looking at it from the audience groups that we are trying to develop. Um, for example, there's an audience group that frequents IME. Actually, this is mainly millennials, parents with young kids or, you know, young professionals. So there is something that we need to cater to our core group. And then there are other sections of society. So there are senior citizens, which I think somewhere are have not been that much involved. I mean, of course, they attend classical music concerts. But beyond that, I don't know if there's any deliberate attempt to reach out to them. Then there are school kids who is very important to us. So that's one way. So they, we have different target groups by age. And then uh, there are people with different interests, right? So we have this core classical community. There are people who are interested in contemporary music. You know, Bangalore is a hub of all these bands, um, you know, and independent rock music. So there's a huge following for that kind of music. There are people who are diehard, like old Kannada film songs and, uh, you know, old Bollywood, Mohammad Rafi, Kishore Kumar. So you have that segment. So, you know, as I said, there's a matrix of audience tastes. And then... On the other hand, it is what we want to do, right? What is the programming that we as an institution need to do? So there is something where we need to cater to. As I said, we get this young crowd. Um, they definitely like to listen to all these bands, you know, these fusion bands. So we do a format called Up Close and Unplug, where it's not like listening to, say, an Agam or a Raghu Dikshit in a big format. We do an unplugged kind of concert where it's a small, compact, intimate set uh, we do a little bit just like this, like an interview with the artist and then they present, they deconstruct different compositions. So that is one format that we've done. Um, apart from that, we do a lot of seasonal programming. Uh, next month being, you know, with Navratri, we have some talks and events around that. Uh, during August, the entire month, we celebrated as the spirit of freedom. And we had talks and performances that showed the links between music and political movements. You know, how... Um, songs become rallying cries for people to come together. So that's another way. We look at things very thematically and seasonally. Last year, for example, was the centenary celebration of Pandit Ravi Shankar. We presented a very important exhibition on his life in collaboration with the Grammy Museum. And we did a whole lot of programming around that. Um, so we had sitar concerts. We had his disciples come in and perform uh, different, as I said, themes connected to Pandit Ravi Shankar. So I would say that curation is sort of arriving at this uh, optimal value. It's like linear programming where you have all these conditions and you need to arrive at some optimal kind of thing, right? So I think curation is something similar where you have all these conditions and then you try and work, work with that. And yes, as you said, the balance between established artists and upcoming ones. That's important. So once a year, we would do a large concert. So the inauguration of the museum was done by uh, Zakir Hussain and Louis Banks. And they did this huge 3,000 people concert um, that was sold out. At the same time, we do monthly programs in our performance theater where uh, we invite up young and upcoming talent to showcase. But one thing that we like to do is every program should have something unique. It shouldn't be run of the mill. There should be something educative, something different about it. And I think audience wants that. And artists also appreciate the opportunity to do that. Uh, could you tell us about the recent project you started with Google Arts and Culture? Sure. So I think the pandemic has forced a lot of institutions, everybody to, you know, get very comfortable with the online space, right? If you're not online, you're pretty much irrelevant. 
so the IME has always we've always been into tech. But typically, we would look at online only as a method to communicate what is happening in the offline world. So, you know, we would organize an exhibition and then just put the posters and all that on social media, right? But once the pandemic hit, we said, hey, a lot of our programming, our content needs to go online. So, uh, one of the initiatives in this direction was getting, doing more online exhibits, we have physical exhibits at the museum, but how do you give that experience online? So Google Art and Culture uh, is, you know, a non-profit arm of Google and they partner with the top museums around the world to help them bring their resources online. So they approached us and of course it was a mutual uh, conversation about partnering. And uh, so through this partnership, we, we have been bringing out online exhibits. Uh, we right now have three online and we're going to bring a fourth one out um, sometime in October and uh, through that our idea is that you know your audience suddenly is not Bangalore or South Bangalore anymore your audience is global and uh, we see the statistics for that we have in fact we have visitors from Norway who visit our um, you know exhibits we have visitors from Japan who, who view our exhibits uh, while it may not be the same experience as a physical space I think it's a great educational tool for people anywhere in the world to view uh, our assets and exhibits on display. And uh, we, we'll be putting out a lot more content on Google Art and Culture in the next few months. So you're also thinking of this um, virtual reality and all other technology uh, going forward, I think, when you integrate with them. We already have that. So we already have okay. a 3D virtual walkthrough of the museum. It's on our website, indianmusicexperience.org. Um, so it can be accessed through a laptop or whatever. But even if you have that virtual reality uh, thing where you can put your cell phone inside, you can actually mm. get a feel of, um, you know, at least the views of the museum in 360. So that's something that we've already done. I don't know if it's true virtual reality. It's more like 360 degree walkthroughs uh, of the museum. And you're right, like AR and VR are, you know, the next frontiers that we need to conquer. We've already run pilot projects in augmented reality. So, for example, if you come to the museum and there's an app, uh, a Flip AR, it's an app that you download on your phone. And then if you focus it on a particular installation, you know, that installation comes to life and it tells you how to play it and what it looks like. So these are things that we are experimenting with. And, uh, you know, we have to embrace tech. That's the future. But I think the one area which I'm really proud that we are focusing on is our community outreach. Because, see, okay. as, as arts organizations, somewhere, I think, they become sort of focused on the music community. But since the museum opened, one of our thought processes, myself and some members, most of the members of my team has been, how do you use music as a tool to impact society beyond music? How do you reach this out to people who have been left out? Um, so to that end, we have two projects that we are running right now. One is called Project Swarita. Swarita loosely means upliftment. And um, we're doing two things through that project. One is that we're reaching out to 500 in the first year, uh, socially disadvantaged children, you know, who, who are in orphanages or sort of come from abusive families, um, uh, who live in homes, you know, these government homes. And uh, we, we keep on bringing them to the museum for an immersive experience. And, you know, just a day spent in an environment where normally they wouldn't come. Or they would think this is not for me, you know, it's too clean and museums are, you know, for elites. So, but we wanted them to come and really have a day of immersion and inspiration at the museum. And we're also, uh, in that project, we're creating these music therapy toolkits uh, for children with neurodiverse needs, loosely autism uh, you know, children on the autism spectrum. And we are creating these musical toolkits which have instruments, some playlists, some worksheets um, that caregivers and autistic children can work together to uh, some way uh, hopefully improve their cognitive abilities um, and we'll see what comes out of it. So that's one project. And the other one is a project that we're running called Yuva in Culture, which we've already spoken about, getting more youth involved in culture. So uh, very briefly in that project, you know, we are creating a youth advisory board for the museum. So there's going to be 14 to 18 year olds on our board uh, saying, you know, hey, you guys need to be doing this. Um, and we are creating, uh, of course, we have an internship program as part of that as well. So I think these... Community initiatives are something that I'm really proud of because it's not just about concerts and audience. That's one part, but really using music as a tool to benefit 
uh, society in some way. And I think that's where all institutions need to be thinking. And, you know, people like Ranga Shankara have done great work in that end as well. Will it become a limitation that you have to only stick to music format? Because, you see, music has its application in dance and performing arts, theatre and everything. How do you... I don't know. I mean, how how are you planning to expand into those uh, areas? Yeah, you know, somewhere, uh, Shwetang, you said it right. There are two answers to that question, I think. One is, if you try to be everything to everybody, I believe you will be nothing to anybody. You have to pick your area of focus and, and build expertise in that and, and contribute to that. So I believe that music is our DNA and that we should be core to that. But like you very rightly said, music is, I think, one of the most universal art forms because it's connected to film, to dance, to theater, uh, in some ways to visual art also. So um, I think we will explore other art forms through the lens of music, but, but stick to the DNA of music alone for now. But like you rightly said, who knows what will happen 10 years or 20 years later. For now, I think music is good. <laughs> Very interesting. Do you have uh, some museums in your mind that are benchmarked for IME? Oh, several. And you know, the best part of my job has been like, um, at least for the first few years. Uh, in fact, the first thing when my founder got me on board, he said, you know, here's this ticket to the US, go visit all the museums in America. And I think that was really sort of farsighted of him uh, to, to say, go and see what's the best in the world. And let's take ideas from that. So my very first sort of assignment was this trip to the US and I visited plenty of museums, which I continue to do now, uh, you know, every time I travel. So which are the benchmark institutions? Of course, the EMP, the Experience Music Project, which has now been renamed as the Museum of Pop Culture. It's located in Seattle and they do a phenomenal job in just making uh, music and museums come alive. Second is the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, uh, which now we are affiliated to. We are official affiliates of the Grammy Museum. And again, they've done a great job because, you know, like Indian music, in some ways, America is a melting pot of cultures, right? They have country, R&B, blues, hip hop, classical, there's so many genres. And yet, they kind of do justice to all of them, which is something that I like. Um, apart from, I mean, and there are museums in, in uh, of course, in various parts of Europe. For example, there's the Housed Music in Vienna, where they have a lot of these extremely interesting interactive installations. Um, you know, there's the Beatles story in Liverpool. So all these music museums in, in different parts of the world. But I would say now, over the past five years, India is doing a great job in, you know, developing new museums, both government and private. So, for example, there's the Partition Museum in Amritsar, which is the first museum focused on a very painful part of India's history, right? The Partition but it's very moving, very touching the way they've brought that experience. There's the Gandhi Museum in, in Ahmedabad. Um, so I think nowadays museums in India are making that effort uh, to, you know, reach out to their audiences. Um, so I think it's a good time in general. No, that's that's very good uh, to hear, Mansi. And now I'm just thinking uh, when you're saying this, you have not named anywhere that IME is a museum in your name. So it's not like in Hyderabad, you have Salar Jang Museum. In Bangalore, you have Vishweshwaraya Museum. But you have never tagged the word museum. Maybe there is some reason to it. Uh, yes and no. Actually, you know what? When we did our initial audience research, we found that people had a very negative connotation with museums in India, right? Like when we were growing up, know. <laughs> you know, who went to a museum unless you were forced to, right? And it all would smell of phenyl and you yes. know, it would be dusty. And it would have these tube lights, you know, it was just not fun. So during the first phase, until we opened the museum, we used the words only IME everywhere, Indian music experience. It's an experience. But then what we also realized is the flip side to that is people didn't know what it was. When you say experience, what does it mean, experience? So now we've, of course, started saying it's Indian music experience, but have a little museum in the bottom so that people have some um, relevance. But I think the the... Key word is experience. This is an experiential museum or an interactive museum. And I think that's what makes it different from all the other places that you name. Although Vishweshwara is actually pretty fun. My next question, uh, Manasi, could you tell us about the individuals or academic partners who are supporting on the technical side of IME? Be it selection of instruments to the museum 
um, and things like that to saying, hey, this is valuable. This is not so valuable. Or how do you make, who is sitting behind and making this judgment? Yeah. So curation, again, not just event curation, but collection, curation, yes, yes. exhibit curation. These are all very important parts uh, of, of what we do. Um, so while setting up the museum, we had a core team. Uh, besides me, uh, you know, with my music knowledge, one of the very key people involved with setting up this museum was uh, a renowned Veena artist from Bangalore, uh, Dr. Suma Sudhindra, someone who comes with decades of experience. And uh, she is someone who, you know, continues to be on the board of the museum and lead our efforts. So while Suma and I were core to sort of a lot of the direction forming, how do we decide what is valid, what is not? So we had a team of subject matter experts who continue again to guide us, but their main involvement was really while setting it up. So these were people who represented Carnatic, Hindustani, film music, folk music, some of the main genres. And um, they and we would meet every so often and make these exact decisions, you know, what is important, what is not. Um, so, so that conversation would happen. As far as the instrument uh, instruments go, again, of course, Suma took a lead on that in terms of sourcing museum instruments from around the country, along with, uh, you know, a person called Mr. Mani, who just unfortunately passed away, who actually went to various corners of the country, researched and got instruments directly from, from the makers. Right now, I think every sort of exhibit, every collection uh, has a different process that we follow. There's no one size fits all. So, you know, each donation that comes to us or each offer that comes to us has to be carefully evaluated from many perspectives, right? One, does it fit in with our larger theme? Two, is it valuable? Three, does it tell something about our history? You know, uh, you know, four, what conditions does it come with? So, you know, there are so many aspects in what that what is the cost involved of either acquiring or preserving or restoring this, this piece. Um, so these are decisions that we have to make every day but I don't think there's any one size fits all we have to keep sort of looking at it and more than institutions it's individuals who kind of uh, contribute to this decision making so I, I'll tell you you know today I think you one just has to be in it and immersed in it for example the internet has become such an amazing way to reach out to people and I'll tell you like for example the first important artifact that we got for the museum was Bismillah Khan Shainai and uh, how did it happen? It actually happened through Facebook. His grandson was on Facebook and then I saw his comment something something Bismillah Khan is his first name and Bismillah Khan. And I reached out to him on Facebook Messenger and I said, hey, we are setting up this museum. We really want your grandfather Chennai. And guess what? Their entire family came to Bangalore, gave a concert. They presented as the Chennai. Wow. And, uh, you know, there were tears all around because they said it's like, you know, parting with a piece of it's my father, my grandfather that I'm parting with and father, of course, his father also came. So uh, I think today reaching out to people has become somewhere a lot more easier because everybody is a tweet or a, a message away. Of course, it might get lost in the ocean as well. Um, and we have many stories like that. For example, very recently, uh, you know, we received Pandit Jas Jasraj's Swarmandal, a uh, great, great legendary musician. And he always had this Swarmandal that he would play and the silk kurta that he would wear and that was presented to us by one of his disciples. Um, similarly with Pandit Ravishankar's uh, collection, you know, Pandit Ravishankar is arguably India's most famous musician worldwide. And, uh, you know, we reached out to his family and uh, his, his wife, Sukanya, very, very graciously worked with us to create this exhibition. So I think really use the internet and reach out and hope that somebody will look at it. Another museum which is doing phenomenal work uh, in preserving our heritage is Dakshina Chitra. Uh, you know, the reason I'm bringing this because uh, also I had a conversation with uh, uh, the founder, Deborah Tagarajan. And, uh, and do you have any plans collaborating with them and doing some projects? Uh, because they are also doing some kind of folk music and everything. If you follow their Insta handle... Uh, they are doing phenomenal work in this uh, and they are also coming up with archaeology courses, online archaeology courses for 10,000 rupees online anywhere in the world. That's phenomenal. I think that didn't exist uh, five, six years ago. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I lived actually in Chennai for two years and when we were sort of ideating setting up this museum, one of the first places I visited 
in India at least was Dakshina Chitra. And it is such a beautiful place for those who haven't visited. They must because, you know, apart from the artifacts and everything, what's really nice is there are always artisans there creating stuff in front of your own eyes. And, and that takes it to a whole different level. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, of course, I have met and had many discussions with uh, Debra Tyagrajan and Hopefully, we will collaborate, you know, sometime in the future. Who knows? Yeah. By the next time, <laughs> we are back on your podcast. We'll be talking about our collaboration. How do you keep the cost structure optimized in running a museum like IME? Yeah, that is the biggest challenge because, you know, we thought setting up was the difficult part. And we realized that, oh, no, now you have to actually run it. So, um, and museums are expensive places to run. I'll give you a few examples, right? During the pandemic, Every other arts institution, just they locked their doors. Of course, they would pay staff salaries, but there was not much of facility cost. For us, as custodians of all these precious artifacts, uh, we can't turn the AC off even for a day. So our electricity bills, our conservation bills, so there is no downtime for a museum because we are custodians of India's cultural heritage in some way. So, so costs are, as I said, most of them are fixed. It's not much of variable cost. So whether our revenue comes in or not, the cost structure is largely fixed. Um, so how do we meet that? Well, we are a non-profit institution. This is a decision that we made early on, which means that uh, a lot of what we do is supported by philanthropic funding. So we, of course, continued. Our main supporter continues to be the brigade group who funds a certain part of our expenditure every year. Now, beyond that, what are the things that we do? There is tickets. There are, you know, proceeds that come in from ticket sales. But again, the pandemic has, of course, uh, you know, brought it down to 10%. In 2019, 20, you know, for every 100 rupees that we earned in 2020, 21, it was 10, 10 rupees. That was the drastic fall. Uh, but of course, in the design of the space itself, we had built in options for revenue generation. So we have a cafe and a gift store on site, which generates some amount of steady revenue for us in the form of rentals and revenue share. Uh, apart from that, our space is on rent. Um, you know, our performance theater, seminar hall, all these classrooms. Um, and then music education, the learning center brings in, you know, some amount of money. Um, and then beyond what we have to, what is our sort of constant mandate, uh, I think it's really important for museums like ours to, to go and really actively find CSR funding, which supports particular projects. So typically, CSR funding will not support, say, general upkeep of the museum. But if we go to them with a very compelling project that's going to affect or benefit a certain section of society, that's the way that, you know, we can kind of bring in funding. So for this program, whatever the expenditure is sort of covered and uh, by a certain grant that comes in. So, you know, there are various ways of doing it. Ideally, in the next five to 10 years, we need to build a corpus for the museum who's, you know, which we invest in certain safe vehicles and that will offset the costs of running the museum. Uh, we're still figuring it out. So any ideas or suggestions that you have will be most welcome. And my last question, um, this, uh, as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman, uh, what, what are the books that you are reading as on today and the, and the books in the past that which has influenced you the most as, a, as an individual? I think I should read a lot more than I do. I was a voracious reader, you know, in my teens and 20s. And now I think it's died down a little bit. So, I mean, the books, rather than talk about the books that I'm reading currently, I'm, I've just started on this book called Being Mortal. Uh, okay. It's 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 a fairly famous book. I, okay. The name of the author slips me. It's on my bedstand right there. But it's a very famous book. Um, I think it's fairly philosophical. It's about... Um, the process of preparing for dying, but it's really about how to live your life. So I think that's a book. I think it's right here. It's by uh, Atul Gawande. That's the book that I'm reading. Okay. Apart from that, books okay. that have influenced me through my life, uh, I'd like to talk about. One is yes. when I was like, uh, when I was probably yes. nine or 10 years old, I read this book called The Dancing Star. Uh, I, I even remember the author's name. It was Gladys Mavern. It was a children's book about the life of this ballerina called Anna Pavlova. She was the world's most famous ballerina at her time and she built this dance company. So she was again, like you said, an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, part of this book uh, talks about how in one particular concert after finishing and, you know, she saw all these old people and all these poor people, they were all just lining up the roads because they were so 
astounded by her performance and and she realized there that, that the purpose of art is to bring joy to the lives of people and i think that's a statement that has just stayed with me through through my life that the real true purpose of art is to bring happiness to people's lives um so that's a book that i think um, has always stayed with me apart from that you know i i'm not able to quite recollect at this point of time is there a book that has deeply influenced me i've i've read a lot of biographies and autobiographies recently i read michelle obama's becoming which i think was great and all women will somewhere resonate with that whole balancing act that you've been talking about of you know family and personal aspirations you know with one's life partner just make motherhood all those things so i think i like that and of course i read really i like that family because i read obama's recent book as well the presidential years um yeah so i think while i do read a lot i think i should read more yes oh. uh, thank you so much manasi uh, it was really a pleasure talking to you uh, i mean today i have got a lot of insights uh, of ime and the phenomenal work you and your team uh, has been doing and really thankful to mr uh, jay shankar uh, who has uh, put his vision uh, and i am very certain that he has put in the right hands <laughs> so uh, and when i am in bangalore i'll make sure that i'll visit and meet you also thank you so much for taking your time No, thank you, thank you, Shweta. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. I think very insightful questions, and great to see that you know the, this way of contributing to creating awareness about Indian art culture and entrepreneurs or artpreneurs. I think a great contribution, and I do hope that you continue this for for hundreds and hundreds of episodes to come. And I'm going to start. uh listening to them as well uh, i just wanted to quickly uh you know sort of mention all our handles so please follow indian music experience on facebook and instagram you just look for indian music experience or visit our website by the same name and you can also um reach out to me on raga manasi r w a g a m a n a s i on instagram or facebook so thanks so much once again i hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode and please do visit indian music experience museum if you are in bangalore do subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platforms either google apple or spotify do follow us on our instagram or facebook page for quick updates we catch you soon on our next episode where we shall be bringing more interesting conversations on our podcast have a good day kalata pa